0: I'm Vivian Parry, Head of Public Engagement at Genomics England. It's my pleasure today to be guest hosting today's episode of The G Word. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. That involves accelerating genomic research, but also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, And although there's a lot of information out there, it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there too. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. Today we have someone very special as our guest. Dr. Christina Waters, who joins us from San Diego in sunny California. Chris is special on multiple accounts because she sits in a really unusual place at the intersection of science, patients and industry. She has a Ph.D. in genetics, the science bit. She founded Rare Science, a nonprofit which accelerates treatments for children with rare disease. patient bit and she's also senior vice president of genomic insights and solutions at congenica a company which specializes in genomic interpretation and that's very closely associated with the hundred thousand genomes project since the start and that's the industry bit i think she'd agree with me that if i said that all three science patients and industry are essential if we're going to provide solutions to rare disease. So welcome, Chris, and do you agree with me? Are all three of those things essential to solutions to rare disease?
1: Well, Vivian, it's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak about one of my favorite words. And I can't agree with you more that all three of these things have to come together. The patient perspective at first and also how do we integrate clinical decision support and then how do we utilize this information to create a way forward for more therapeutics that are based on precision or genetic medicine.
0: So how did you come to be involved in rare disease because obviously you started off in genetics Genetics and rare disease I suppose are linked but what made you so fascinated by rare disease?
1: That is such a great question. So I am actually a farm girl and uh, we I grew up on a farm and we raised Suffolk sheep. And there was a lot of challenges at the time when I was that young with genetics. And I went on to study conservation genetics and worked on the badland buffaloes but I really wanted to impact the health of people. And so I was drawn to the UC Davis genetics program. It was brand new. I had a master's in molecular engineering.
0: Of course.
1: The first of its kind from San Diego. It was like just up and coming. We were just starting to understand how to manipulate the genome in to understand biology. And so I I was just so fascinated on how we could apply this to health and wellness. I was I went to UC Davis and got my um, genetics degree and have always been interested in rare orphan and neglected diseases. But I have to say that I one of my opportunities in my career was to work for the Genomics Institute of the Novartis Research Foundation, here in San Diego, where we sat between discovery and also translating that to new products for um, Novartis, and so I had an amazing mentor, and that is Professor Paul Herling. He's the head of research um, of Novartis, and he, he really explained to me the importance and showed me the importance of the integration of patients and understanding New avenues of understanding how that biology. So he told me one time. He said, "Chris, you're going to do a lot at the bench. You're going to learn a lot from doing experiments, but you're going to learn so much more by spending time with patients." And so that's how it really it really began was spending more time in um, NITD, which was the National Institute of Tropical Disease for Novartis that was based in Singapore. And um, I remember us working. During the times of SARS, and really trying to understand the epidemiology of dengue, you know, talking to the directly to patients and clinicians.
0: And uh, where does rare science come into this? This extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary patient organization that you set up, and uh, this is a podcast, so of course you won't be able to see this, but she's surrounded <laughs> by things I know to be rare bears. Tell me about all of that.
1: The Rare Bear program, uh, it's just the heart and soul of rare science. But the idea about rare science uh, when we started was to start bringing together patients around the world that had the same disease. And some of the the challenges for, I'll just back up a little bit and and kind of set the background on why we have the mission that we do. And there are hundreds of millions of people that suffer from rare disease and two thirds of them are kids. And what is challenging is that there is not one country that has enough information to start understanding these, these rare diseases. So there, there wasn't support for the families. There is found patient advocacy foundations that are starting up around the world. And I love that this has happened, you know, really parents taking on their the, the responsibility of building patient groups, but it's very difficult to understand the complexity of getting to diagnosis. Then what is that diagnosis or genetic diagnosis? How does that apply to what's happening biologically? And then how do you actually translate that to the new precision medicines that could possibly be available. Right now, we can sequence kids that come into the PICU or NICU and only 30% of the time do we actually identify the genetic etiology. And for those kids that are diagnosed, only 5% of the you know, seven and 9,000 identified rare diseases that are out there have an actual therapy that's approved for, tr- for use for the treatment. And so what we wanted to do at Rare Science was to think about how do we just bring together community? How do we look at community in a completely different way to help support these families? So what what happened was um, my mom went into the hospital and she was misdiagnosed. And so she had to have surgery. And the next day we're sitting there and she's like, I love what you're doing but I'm not quite sure I understand what you're doing. I'm the only scientist in our family. And so she she said, and I, I said to her, I said, look, I'm doing for kids what just happened to you. I said, if we could identify more quickly what is going on with kids, then we can treat them faster and hopefully halt progression or have early intervention or make a change, bring communities together so we can understand what's similar and different across these different diseases. And she's a big volunteer, she's a sewer. Everyone in my family is a crafty person. Are you? (laughs) You know what, they joke with me so much and well, you'll understand why it's so funny, but um, I don't, I'm not that crafty. I have a little bit of art in me but I don't sew, and that is instrumental to what I'm going to share with you, but I was so peer pressured into buying a sewing machine. I do have one, but I'm not quite sure how to use it, so we'll, we'll hold that on <laughs> for a later conversation, but so my mom, she, she's volunteer. She was, uh, she still volunteers for Concord Cancer, and that's um, sewing pillowcases for people undergoing chemotherapy, and so I, we were joking, and I said, you know, well, why don't you help me make rare bears? And so um, I, I'm sharing right now for those of you that can't see us a rare bear with with Vivian here. And what happened was we were going to start making bears. Um, just for the local kids in San Diego. But now the what we call the rare bear army that makes what we call bear skins, it's unstuffed fabric bears that um, are made from remnant fabric. And so the bears are one of a kind ki- bears for one of a kind kids. And there are close to 7,000 rare bear army members that sew these bear skins. The skins come back to San Diego and we stuff and sew them up um, utilizing such great partners such as Illumina, Thermo Fisher, Biotech and Other Pharma, um, Shire, Takeda, PTC, so many of the rare disease pharma companies participate in stuffing and Girl Scouts, we have a STEM program, but stuff and sew up these bears. And so the way that this works is that um, each of the bear army members get a tag of authenticity And that is um, a bear tag that says rare science, but on the other side, it's very critical. It has a serial number, so it has a tag of authenticity of where this bear was so we can ensure quality and we also track the whole process of the bear. It also has bear feet, it says rare science. We often do uh, partnerships and some of the bears have capes, like we have a big project with National Society of Genetic Counselors. But the whole idea is that this bear then is tracked and we get requests from around the world. We have about 10,000 families right now that have received bears that represent about a thousand different rare diseases. They send in their requests and they say, uh, we know their age, their gender, their favorite hobbies or favorite things and colors. And then we match specifically what they want to a bear. And then they, the bear goes to its new home and then the parents take a picture of their child and the bear, or they uh, send a picture of the bear in their new home. And then that's shown on our web gallery. And so what happens is that there is a new connection between people that want to make a huge difference in a child's life. Want to promote science, but maybe don't know how, maybe they have a different background. But our whole rare bear army was instrumental in the first patient derived stem cell program that was run by rare science. So, who would have known that quilters, because quilters is a second hobby, largest hobby in the world to golf, but quilters would drive the first stem cell program for rare disease in the world. And so we really tried to integrate not only what you said at the beginning, Vivian, which was patients and the patient families and global with you know clinicians and researchers and industry, but we also have tapped into a whole community, these crafty people that are out there that really want to contribute to helping children that just didn't know how before.
0: It's fantastic. I love this program. It's so fantastic. <laughs> but one of the things that it does is it connects up people with particular rare diseases, one to another. Yes. But also, yeah. that for scientists, that you get insights about the disease that maybe you didn't have before. Um, that's incredibly important because it can give you completely new clues, can't it, as to how you investigate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I, you know, through rare science at our next steps, what we're hoping to do is, again, create um, extended information of our families that will track the way to understand what's similar and different across these patient populations. And This is the biggest challenge for clinicians is that it's twofold, is that not often do clinicians see more than one child with a rare disease in their career, especially of the same diseases. And it's so important to have this self-reported information from the patient families because you're able to start looking at additional trends that may not have been associated before by one clinician observing what's going on. You wouldn't even make an association of the biology. So one example would be I had a family on uh, a family group on a call, and um, just to abbreviate the call, is you know, all of them had been treated for a particular behavioral phenotype. But Uh, one of the parents was late to the call and she said, well, we were just at the hospital. We were getting fitted for leg braces because we have some bone growth challenges for my daughter. And the whole call got silent. Everybody was silent. And then it erupted because everybody on the call had the same thing going on with their child. It may have not been in the same place. It could have been an arm or a leg or a different joint. But all of them had this phenotype that wasn't yet discovered to play a role in this, um, in this disease. And you can imagine that this opens up a whole other avenue of treatments that can help these kids that is not just based on a behavioral but actually a a different physiological um, intervention.
0: Because we often think about involving patients, say in clinical trials. And in fact, if you tried to do a clinical trial and you hadn't involved patients, uh, you probably wouldn't get it funded because people recognize that actually patient involvement really makes those trials so much better and actually much more successful. But there's still a resistance to involving patients Right up at the beginning of research, and that's not your view at all, is it?
1: No, it's not. And I, you know, I think that we have so much more to learn about genomics. As I had said earlier, you know, when we sequence a patient, thirty a child that comes into the emergency room, you know, thirty percent of the time we know what the genetic etiology is. But the, the challenges are, we, we still, what's the other 70%? It may not all be genetic, but we need to figure out what that is. And the only way that we are going to figure out all of these different um, contributing factors is by talking to the patients. And it's, it's phenomenal to me when I talk to the patient groups or the parents how much more of an expert they are on this particular disease than anybody else I've ever talked to because they're living with it. They understand it. They're putting things together. They're talking to each other. And so if we can potentially create ways in which um, we're tracking quantitatively what they are sharing with each other, not just on Facebook, but really trying to understand what the similarities and differences are across not just in the U.S., but everywhere in the world, we're going to figure it out. And that's the one of the other biggest challenges I think that there is because right now the genome reference is not a reference that represents the diversity of genomics that is out there. And so this is one of the other things about rare science is that we have kids in Croatia, Syria, Jordan, China, Japan, Australia, everywhere in the world. And we're hoping that by capturing just the diversity of the the phenotypes, we can start then thinking about how we can help with understanding how genomics, how important it is to capture the diversity. And I really... Love this paper that came out a few years ago from the Karolinska Institute, and I'll just quote Anna Lindström, who is the senior senior author of this paper, and and they had written about this the the 1,000 Swedish genomes, and how 1.8 megabases don't even um, map to our genetic reference 37, and 40 percent are missing from the the current genomic reference. And so she's saying, these are sequences that we don't interrogate today because they are not in the human reference genome. So if they are somehow linked to disease, we wouldn't know about it. And so the, the big challenge here is that we have to start thinking globally. We have to include diversity. We have to start thinking about how we work together to pull this information and that is when we're going to start thinking about not just rare disease but our approach to holistic personalized medicine across the world and it hasn't been more apparent for this need in this time of covid
0: well you're singing genomics england's tune (laughs) (laughs) you know but just tell me about uh, congenica because congenica was set up at the beginning of the hundred thousand genomes project and it's an interpretation company just explain for those who have no idea what we're talking about when we say an interpretation company
1: yeah so i i am so lucky to have the opportunity to have joined congenica i consulted for some time and then um came on board Um, as a a new employee at the end of last year. And so Congenica historically is known as clinical decision support, genetic clinical decision support. And that is really a way in which we have software that enables clinicians to make a genetic diagnosis. And and it's known to help um, very specifically in undiagnosed and rare cases. I think that as we move forward into this new era of precision medicine, we're going to find that even common disease is smaller and smaller subgroups. So this software can also aid in identifying other genetic contributors to both rare and common. But I came on board for a different reason, and I I love my colleagues that are working on the clinical decision support, but I really felt you know, strongly about if we don't have something that that complements diagnosis, we are not fulfilling the story, the, the goal, the objective of let's diagnose and then let's find treatments. And so I have been working on a program called CG Insights over the last years. And what we do is we leverage our internal expertise in genetics and genomics to be able to understand how genes cause different biologies that are associated to disease and then what we aim to do is de-risk genetic driven uh, discovery research and clinical development in partnerships with biotech and pharma
0: so now if i was your mom i'd be saying Christine, what are you talking about now <laughs> risk what are you what are you chatting on about just just explain that
1: yeah, so well, I mean, I think everybody realizes and as you know why aren't there better therapies out there, or why is there not enough therapies for especially rare disease? There's a gap, and so we have so many technologies at our fingertips, and yes, it's and there's acronyms and it's an alphabet soup of things to talk about, but bottom line is that we have the capabilities to understand why people are sick, and we still need to improve that, but we need to couple it with how do we not only create new therapies that are very specific with less side effects that are very focused on the progression of disease, But what if, and this is my dream, is that what if we could utilize this information eventually to start understanding risk of disease to where we're talking about prevention and this is about global health and wellness. And I think everybody can get their arms wrapped around that.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's quite difficult for people because we have this perception that somehow industry is bad and you know healthcare is good but industry is bad and its involvement in uh, in in, uh, in healthcare is bad and yet in genomics we absolutely cannot do this by ourselves it has to be a collaboration and do you f- do you find that that's getting easier now do do people understand this better do you think and what are the barriers to um, to understanding people's problems with industry
1: so i have to say over the last years and also circumstantially as we have all been facing the covid pandemic i think everyone is realizing that we have to have alliances i mean if we use covid just as the example if we're not diagnosing correctly and you know Genetics have been key in tracking the different COVID strains around the world, and that's been driving our implementation of making sure that um, we're protecting people where we need to. Um, we're putting you know, tests where they need to be. We're tracking people travel around the world. But we really need to have a way in which we build an infrastructure that's pulling together diagnosis, it's genetic or genomic, and then there is a, an amazing way in which we can leverage this information to build specific vaccines for what's happening. But if we could take our learnings from COVID this, this time and actually implemented it for rare and common diseases, it would a, be a whole completely different world. And so I am hoping that we're all learning from this and that we start thinking about, you know, what are those obstacles, as you mentioned, what are they? It is really about enough data moving, one, moving genomics into the clinic in the clinical process. So if somebody comes in to the hospital, why don't we genomic sequence these people? Collecting data in a way that's standardized and interoperable which would enable the third thing, and that is data sharing. And I think that if patients and hospitals are doing that and we align incentives, we can also bring in industry to start thinking about how we leverage this information in a very thoughtful, pa- patient centric way to drive these genetic driven therapies for precision medicine.
0: Where do you see genomics going over the next? few years. What's your big dream? I mean, Chris is always <laughs> a girl with big dreams. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I um one of the things that I always say and, and especially in rare science and my friends at Congenica also hear me say this is that I think we've done a really big disservice to the rare community and, and also just maybe even common disease. We've categorized disease by names and they're treated by names. And what I've seen over the last, even just more in the last six months, is that we're all coming together to recategorize disease, not by a name, but by the biology. And so you could imagine that if we can think of things, look at things that are the same and reposition existing therapies, so take already approved therapies and be able to use them in different diseases. That would be a huge time and cost savings for everyone. I also think that we can utilize what we're learning in rare disease to be able to start understanding complex common disease. I think that that, that's a really big piece of this as well is it's turning it all on its head. So normally what we did was we would take big populations of people and say, okay, what is the therapy that we could build that could help most of them? But maybe we turn it on its head and we start thinking about recategorizing disease based on biology, thinking about how we redo clinical trials based on putting different diseases in a clinical trial, and we start moving genetics into the clinic. And so utilizing, again, this genomics information to streamline and cost-save for industry R&D, but we've also seen utilizing these plans already through academic medical centers, how genomics in the clinic improves patient outcome, change in case management, and also health economics. And that works for, you know, the NHS to our multi-payer system in the US.
0: Having heard Chris Waters, perhaps you'll all appreciate just how proud I am to have her as a friend, as well as a guest on this podcast. Uh, She's utterly magnificent. Thank you so much, Chris, for being with us. And that's about all for this episode. Thanks for listening to us uh, on this discussion about the G word and for joining us on our journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform. And if you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone that we should interview, do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And I've got a request for you. If you've enjoyed listening, do please give us one of those five-star reviews because actually what it does is it really helps other people find out about the series and we'd appreciate that very much. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Chris. Bye for now.
1: Thanks, Vivian, such a pleasure.